I'd like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And I emphasized that on purpose. Because we're going to encounter a passage of Scripture this morning that requires our understanding of the Old Testament. I'm going to help you with that. We are concluding Nehemiah's accounting, his personal memoir, how God used him in the rebuilding of the wall. And we began many weeks ago with Nehemiah hearing that Jerusalem was in a bad condition. And when he heard that, it broke his heart and God providentially gave him a burden to go back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and ultimately begin the process of re-inhabiting the city. And as we end, we're going to again meet Nehemiah hearing bad news about Jerusalem. And in it, we are greatly helped. I think we'd all like to imagine that at some day when our story ends, we will ride off into the sunset. That at some point in time, things will just get easy and our road will be one of peace and only peace. But according to this passage in the context this morning, Nehemiah is going to go out fighting. Nehemiah is going to go out passionate. He's going to go out fervent. And I think there's a great lesson for us. I want you to look in Nehemiah chapter 13. I'm just going to read one verse and a few words in another to set the context. Nehemiah writes in verse 6 of chapter 13, But in all this time was I not at Jerusalem. Now that indicates to us that in the verses that precede this one, something has happened that Nehemiah wants to distance himself from. He is saying to us, with all of this that has happened, I want you to know I was not at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And this is the phrase I want you to hear from verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem. Nehemiah is returning to Jerusalem. Let me help you a little bit with the story. After the walls were dedicated, we know that Nehemiah served as the governor of Judah, the governor of Jerusalem for a time. And he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Babylon and is serving with Artaxerxes yet again. And while Nehemiah is away, things are beginning to fall apart in Jerusalem. And so after a period of time, Nehemiah again asks leave of Artaxerxes and goes back to Jerusalem. That's the simple context. But for us to fully understand what is being communicated here, I have to start with a science lesson. How many of you are good at science? In each service today, I've hoped that no hands go up, but hands go up. Because I am not good at science, and if I'm asking, are you good at science, that means I'm going to try to use something from science that I hope I could just pastorally fly right through there, and you'd be like, that guy's pretty smart. But if you know science, you're going to know I'm not that smart, so I have to read directly from my notes, and I'll probably have trouble pronouncing it, but here it goes. The second law of thermodynamics states that in a closed system, things move toward the maximum state of entropy or... Disorder. Why do scientists not just say disorder? Why do you have to say entropy? We get it. You're smart. Great. We get disorder. What it means is things tend to grow more disorderly over time. 
That is a physical law, but there is a spiritual parallel. And we are going to encounter the spiritual parallel this morning in Nehemiah chapter 13. Unless we are constantly engaged in fighting against the flesh, unless, according to the scripture, we are mortifying the deeds of the flesh and we are putting on all of our armor so that we can stand against the attacks of the devil. Unless we are ceaselessly engaged in purifying ourselves and pursuing holiness, we tend toward more spiritual disorder. And when you put the chronological pieces of our study together, you'll note that Nehemiah has been away and things in Jerusalem have grown more spiritually disordered. And now Nehemiah has to return. In fact, things are so bad that his old enemy Tobiah, whom we have studied throughout this passage, has a brand new apartment in the city of Jerusalem. Now, remember, Nehemiah has tried to keep Sanballat and Tobiah out of the city, but the fact is, Tobiah has a brand new condo, and it's a really nice one. In fact, verse 5 tells us about it. Eliashib the high priest prepared for him, Tobiah, a great chamber. Where was his great chamber? Well, before, aforetime, they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. He's living in the temple. This is not good. Tobiah should not be living in the temple. And in order to make space for Tobiah to live in the temple, they actually took out all of the stores that were intended for the Levites to live on and the singers and the porters and for them to carry out proper worship of God. They emptied all of that out and moved Tobiah in. This is a problem. This is not just a problem for what it does in Jerusalem. This is a problem because it directly breaks the mandate of God. Now, I want you to understand, as I establish this, this is Old Testament covenant. And in Old Testament covenant, God had specific expectations and mandates for his chosen people. And every time that God does something, he does so on purpose and with specific intention. And an Ammonite should not have been living in the temple. Why, you say? And I love when you do that because I can tell you're so hungry for scriptural knowledge. Here's why. When you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, here we hear the law of God. Moses is communicating, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Anybody confused about that? That is the law of God. Now, what we are probably wondering is, why, God? What is wrong with an Ammonite? What is wrong with a Moabite? I must know more from the Scripture. Hold your horses. We'll get there. Let's read on. Here's what God says. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when ye came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pethor, of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Here's why God has said the Ammonite and the Moabite cannot be in the congregation forever. Because when you, my chosen people, came out of the nation of Egypt and were going your circuitous route to the promised land, they could have helped you. 
They could have blessed you, but instead they did not meet you with bread and with water. They did not offer you provision. And beyond that, they hired Balaam, a prophet, with the intention of getting him to curse you. You may better know Balaam as the guy whose donkey talked to him. That's Balaam. But Balaam could not curse them because God would not let Balaam curse them. So he gives advice to the kings of Ammon and Moab, and his advice is actually carried out with incredible effectiveness. He says, since God won't let me curse them for you, here's my advice to you. Let your sons and daughters intermarry with theirs, and before long they will be worshiping your gods. And it comes to pass. So when God says something like, I don't want an Ammonite or a Moabite in the congregation, there's reason. And when God says, I don't want you to give your sons to their daughters or take their sons for your daughters, there is good reason. And the Bible teaches us that all the way back at the promise of Abraham, God said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. So God's just following through on what he's already said. It's not really hard to follow what God wants. It's just really hard to do what God wants. And so things are falling apart in Jerusalem. In verse 4, Eliashib the priest who had oversight of the chamber of the house of God was allied unto Tobiah. Earlier in our study, we remember that he was related to Sambalat, so he's completely compromising with the enemy. It is utterly and completely in a state of disorder. And whenever you find failure to separate according to the law of God, yourself unto the use of God, you will find that it bears fruit, bad fruit. And so all we are doing is establishing that what is going on in Jerusalem should not be going on in Jerusalem. But remember how we began. Nehemiah has caught wind that things are not going on very well in Jerusalem. And I love what he says in there, so I came back. Nehemiah returns, in my mind, maybe not in yours, this is a cinematic moment. I like to read historical accounts. I love the story of Douglas MacArthur who required a presidential command that he leave the Philippines for the sake of his safety. But as he is leaving the Philippines and boarding the ship to go away, he says to General George Moore, who's there commanding those harbor defensive, George, keep the flag flying, I'm coming back. And we know that on October 20th, 1944, he waded ashore. It's very cinematic. It is an exciting scene. And he does a radio broadcast. And in the broadcast, he says, People of the Philippines, I have returned. That's just cool. Old, black and white, still really cinematic. I feel the same sense of history when I arrive at verse 7 and I read, I came back to Jerusalem and here's what we know. When Nehemiah showed up at Jerusalem the first time, it was in an utter state of disrepair. It was in complete disorder, but he came and set things right. Would we therefore have any other expectation than when Nehemiah arrives on the scene and things are in a state of disorder and disrepair that he will set them right? Only now, he's about a 70-year-old man. But listen, as we read on in verse 7, I have now come back to Jerusalem and I understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house 
of God, and it grieved me sore. Now, I know when Tobias saw Nehemiah back in town, he thought to himself, not this guy again. Not this do-gooder. Not this do-right guy. What does he do? Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. He chucked everything that Tobiah had in the room out in the yard. And then he commanded that the room be fumigated. I love what one commentator said. Nehemiah didn't even want the smell of Tobiah hanging around. He is in a cleaning mood. Chucks everything in the yard, fumigates the room, and returns the stuff that belongs to God to its proper place. Immediately, it is a bit abrasive, isn't it? Immediately, we think to ourselves, well, I know that perhaps Nehemiah could have gone in and just conversed with Tobiah, and maybe Tobiah would have understood, and he could have brought Eliashib around. Nehemiah is not worried about talking to anybody. Nehemiah is cleaning things up. It is incredibly reminiscent of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who walked into the temple and saw that they had made it a house of merchandise, and they were ripping off the poor people, and they were incentivizing worship, and Jesus went in and turned tables over and took a whip and chased everybody out. It is zeal for the house of God. It is passion and it is fervency for purity. And that sounds about as antiquated as can possibly be. Well, I went to church today. What was the message about fervency for purity? Ugh, glad I don't go to your church. We're glad you don't go either because we only want pure people there. Fervency for purity, being pushed out of apathy into zealousness for the things that God cares about. Can I remind you that in the New Testament, we read that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we are Christians, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we are the temple of God. To further elaborate on that, your body, according to 1 Corinthians 6.19, is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which means purity does matter. Which means when sin invades and it is always ceaselessly trying to get in, if we don't fight it off as subtle as it is, it will creep in and before long we'll be as far from God as can possibly be. We must deal with the presence of sin in our lives like Nehemiah did, decisively and immediately. Nehemiah returns and he gets to work. And then I note this in verse 10. He starts to reprove them. Again, that's a Bible word that I am using with intention. Look at verse 10. And I perceived, Nehemiah says, I also understood. I started to pick up on the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. Here's what's going on. They all signed a covenant. Do you remember they publicly declared by signing a covenant? And one of the things that they said specifically was, we will not forsake the house of the Lord. We will do what the law tells us to do by bringing our tithes into the storehouse. But they were not doing it. And what they were to bring in was to not only carry on all the worship and sacrifice, it was also supposed to sustain the Levites and the singers and the porters. But because everything had been taken out and no one was any longer giving their tithes into the storehouse, the singers and the Levites and the porters had to run back to their farm fields to make a living that way because there was no way for them to sustain themselves at the house of God. 
Now you're going to pick up more on the spirit of Nehemiah in verse 11. Then contended I with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken after all of us heard the law of God? Everybody had a good cry. Everybody confessed. And then we all publicly declared that we wouldn't do this. Why is this happening? I gathered them together and I set them in their place, then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. Here's what I understand. Nehemiah is beginning to clean house and Nehemiah is beginning to restore order. I don't think we can overestimate the need of spiritual leadership. I don't think we can overestimate the hand of God on a man like this offering direction setting parameters and boundaries, and communicating vision. That's what's going on here. I believe there was volume attached to the words. Why is the house of God forsaken? We know they said that they wouldn't do it, and I have to believe as Nehemiah returns, it hits him hard that this is what has gone on. That they have gone so far from what they all said they would do that Tobiah actually lives in the temple. You know what amazes me about God's mercy and grace? And very infrequently do we see this in that light. But when we are going errant, when we are going distant from God, he will remind us oftentimes with a messenger. And as Nehemiah was back serving with Artaxerxes again, and he had vacated Jerusalem, and all of this disorder was going on in Jerusalem, God sent the prophet Malachi. Malachi is a book of the Bible that we don't visit very often, but Malachi was ministering. He was the mouthpiece for God in the time that Nehemiah was back in Babylon and Jerusalem was left on its own. And the message of Malachi is this from Malachi 3.8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me. Even this whole nation, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. How many times have we heard those verses referenced? And we have perhaps wondered, what is the context of this Old Testament shouting prophet Malachi? He's telling the people, you aren't doing what you said you would do. You said you wouldn't forsake the house of God, and yet you're doing it. You better square this up, because when Nehemiah comes back, he's not going to be as nice as I am about it. As nice as you are, you've already told us we're robbing God. You are already pronouncing a curse on us, because we're not doing what God wanted us to do. I have to think Nehemiah was picturing his retirement years a little differently. I have to imagine Nehemiah's thinking in his heart, I've already come here once and built a wall and reestablished the law and set things in order. I'm back for the second time and I have as much work to do now as I did then. Perhaps he wanted to quit, maybe retreat into a simpler life, but that's not what he does. Nehemiah has returned and he reproves them and Nehemiah now begins to remind them of the most simple and basic truth. If you don't do what God says, God will judge you. Look at verse 15. Sometimes I say that aggressively. Would you please look at verse 15? So that I am not so authoritative in my delivery. As you are are joining me in verse 15, here is what Nehemiah writes. In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath. 
bringing in sheaves, and lading asses, also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manners of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Now get this. Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Let me help you understand a lot of big words. Nehemiah takes a look around. He's already booted Tobiah out of the the storeroom. He has already begun to reprimand and reprove and deliver some pretty strong messages. And now as he's back in Jerusalem for a few weeks, he notices that on the Sabbath day, people are carrying burdens and they are selling victuals and the marketplace is open. And Nehemiah knows God said, keep the Sabbath. God said, honor the Sabbath. God said, keep it holy. You guys are blowing this. And he's contending with people. He looks around and he notices all of this going on. And then he says to them at the end, you guys aren't the brightest bulbs, are you? You're not the sharpest tool in the shed. Anything you can think of along those lines. How many of you were here with me, Nehemiah is probably saying, when we rebuilt the walls? That was a great time. Okay, quick question. When we showed up, do you remember the rubble? Do you remember the char marks? Do you remember that the walls were broken down? Yes. It took us 52 days, but we built it all back. Okay, okay. Do you remember the generations that lived in bondage in Babylon? Oh, yeah, heard all the stories. Do you remember when we all confessed the sins and the iniquities of our father and we rebuilt the walls and then reinstituted all the right things? Mm Mm-hmm. Remember that too. Okay, the reason the walls were broken down and burned And the reason we all were carried off into bondage is because we wrecked and abandoned the mandates of God. And here you are, in short order, after having rebuilt the walls, wrecking and abandoning the mandates of God. Are you that thick in the head? Do you not understand that you have gone from revival to rejection and rebellion very quickly? Have you forgotten how we got here in the first place? And here's my favorite. Now we're getting to the part of the passage that makes the Bible good. Look at verse 19. Please look at verse 19. With me as friends. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. Okay, it's the night before the Sabbath. It's starting to get dark. Nehemiah is circling the city, and he is giving out the rule, shut the gate. Don't open the gate again until the Sabbath day is over. Who do you think you are? Man, shut the gate, gates get shut. Now he set some of his servants there, because he knows a lot of the porters that are there have probably been bribed, and they're opening the gates to allow these outsiders from Tyre to come in with their wares and the marketplace to go on. And Nehemiah says, no more, close the gates. Don't open the gates until the Sabbath is over. And some of his servants are there doing it. I imagine that these merchants come from Tyre and they sit outside the wall and they're looking at their friend who has opened the door for them for weeks on end. And he says, open the door. And he says, I can't. He's back. Just open the door. I can't. 
He's put some of his servants here. He's not letting us open the door. And then I can imagine that one of these merchants from Tyre says, he's 70 years old. Who cares what he says? Oh, read on. They all care what he says. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware, verse 20, lodged without Jerusalem, get this, once or twice, which means a couple of weeks go by, and these merchants from Tyre come, and they're camping just outside this closed gate. They're assuming it's just going to go on like it's always gone on. You're going to open the gates, we're going to come in, we're going to make money on the Sabbath. Oh, contraire. Once or twice, they camp out, and then Nehemiah, walking the top of the wall, takes note of the fact that the merchants are still camping out. And so here's what happens in verse 21. Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do so again, I will lay hands on you. Seventy-year-old man, nothing. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. That's an Old Testament way of saying, if you keep coming and sitting outside these gates thinking they're going to open for you, if you come back next week, I personally will come down and knock you out. I personally will come down and chuck you back into the wilderness from which you came. And you say, was he scary? Well, I know this. The Bible says not a one of them came back again. I want nothing to do with that old man. That guy's got fire. That guy's got God on him. That guy cares about purity as far as Jerusalem is concerned. And in verse 22, he says, And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates. They should sanctify the Sabbath day. And then notice this phrase. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. Here's what he's saying. In effect. God, I want you to take note of something. That when all of this disorder came in, I was in Babylon. And now that I am back, I want you to know this ain't on me. I'm doing everything I can. Remember my zeal. Remember my passion. Remember me for good. We don't want broken down walls again. He is reminding them, when you sin, persecution, consequence, tribulation comes. Don't sin. God judges. And then he re-instructs them. Now, it's going to get really strong in here, and I just need you to ride with me to the end of this wave. Please look at verse 23 along with me. I've done this the whole message now, and it makes me feel better. In those days also, he just keeps seeing stuff that's going on. Here's what he saw. Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. Now, please be reminded, this is not God segregating for the sake of segregation. This is God protecting his chosen people from falling off into serving false gods, which we know even as Nehemiah reminds them in verse 26 of chapter 13, that's exactly what happened to Solomon. And he says, Solomon was so blessed. Solomon was so smart. Solomon was so great. And yet even Solomon could not endure that storm. And there's one of my favorite Bible phrases in all of the scripture arrives in verse 26. It's outlandish women. If you have a King James, it says out Landish women. And if this was a Baptist church from the 80s, the pastor would preach an entire topical message on outlandish women. And it would work. It was the 80s. It's what they did. Some of you were there. Some of you weren't. You'll regret it. It's a good time to be a pastor, as I understand it. I never experienced it. 
Now I can't preach messages on outlandish women, but I can point it out and say it's in there. And what a great two words to put together. And they took Solomon down, did these outlandish women. What we're driving at is God said, don't marry the wives of Ashdod. Don't marry those girls of Ammon and Moab. You will capitulate and serve false God. He's chasing after purity. And Nehemiah looks around and he says, oh my, you've done it. You publicly signed the covenant and said you wouldn't. And yet I see that you've intermarried with those of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And what's worse is your kids no longer are speaking Hebrew. How are they going to know what God wants? How are they going to know what God expects? They can't even speak the language. What are you going to do about it, Nehemiah? You ready for some Old Testament stuff? We're about to get real Old Testament. Verse 25, and I contended with them and cursed them. And I smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Oh my goodness. Nehemiah is Punching people, smiting them. Hair is getting plucked out. It's like the scarlet letter. If you see the plucked hair, you're looking at somebody who married an outsider and you say, Pastor, you must clean this up. It's all in here. There's nothing I can do but deliver the truth. Nehemiah is so adamant about purity before God. He is so concerned that they honor God in a holy way. He is so struck by the disorder, spiritually speaking, that has taken place in such a short period of time that he hits this scene like a whirlwind of fire and decisively and immediately he goes after sin. How many of us are the same way? He reinstructs the people as to God's expectations. It's only been a few years and somehow, somehow you've moved on. Even as we get down into verse 28, I love a phrase in there. And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. It's a good old word. I just told him, get away from me. And at this point in time, you pick up on the theme that if Nehemiah turned his gaze to you, you just got out of town. I wish I could have been there to see it, don't you? The Bible tells us that Moses was meek. The Bible tells us of his kindness. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was meek, but at the same time, incredibly strong. I don't sense anywhere in here that Nehemiah was the quiet, take it for a while type. Do you? Nothing but zeal, nothing but fervency, nothing but passion. Even the very last words of his personal memoir are, Remember me, oh my God, for good. Even as I close it out, even as my years come to an end, remember me for good. Because all of my life, against all the odds, it was hard. But I did my best to do what you wanted. And when I could have sailed off into the sunset, I came back and I refused to lower the flag. I returned and I reproved and I reminded and I re-instructed, remember me for good. You say, Pastor, I knew that a Baptist church was the only place that messages would be talked, like where people are getting punched in the face and hair's getting ripped out, and probably so. And I'm telling you from the onset, this is Old Testament law. This is a specific mandate for God's chosen people that is being carried out. But the principle is timeless. 
Any time that God works on the human soul, it is applicable to us. And what we realize is this. Each of us that are gathered here right now and each of us that are watching this are too easy on sin for ourselves. We harbor it, to use a Bible word. We accommodate it. We rationalize its presence. We at times have even seared our conscience to such a degree that we don't even sense its deadly presence. It is so subtle and it has been a part of who we are so long. It has become a habit in our lives. It doesn't even stand out to us as sin anymore. And what we need at times is a Nehemiah type lesson to come ripping through our hearts to remind us that anger, that uncontrolled tongue, that pride, that lust, That materialism, that greed, whatever it may be, has no place in your heart. That jealousy, that envy, that slander that comes rolling off your tongue, that neglect of God's house, that neglect of prayer, that neglect of the word that you have accommodated and rationalized, deal with it decisively and immediately. There's a great book on the life of Nehemiah. In it, the author said this, in these days, When all areas of life are filled with confusion and are falling into disorder, we do well to subject our souls to the steadying, refreshing influence of a man like Nehemiah who was specific in his purpose toward God and who turned wishbones into backbones. That's just great. What we have is a lot of very weak Christians who need some spiritual backbone. And you know it, you've grown a little apathetic toward God's house. You've grown a little unfaithful. You've grown a little comfortable. You've become a lot passionless. You don't have fervency and zeal towards sin. In fact, it rules you, and a lot of times, it's seated on the throne of your heart, and you don't even know it, and every time you get near it, it smacks you with its scepter. It's in charge, even though we've been told in Scripture, we're super conquerors. We're hyper-victorious. When was the last time you examined yourself with the veracity that Nehemiah did and pursued holiness with some zeal and some passion and woke up just a little bit. How stunning is it to think a few short years after rebuilding broken down walls and promising that they would never do it again, they're doing it again. How much like us is that? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.